listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the book of Acts, how Christians live. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Today, I think you're going to appreciate the message, especially because it's about you. This is a message about you and about your life. Now, every message that I give is about you and your life, but this message in particular, because you're either dealing with this right now or you're going to deal with it in the future, the sovereignty of God. How is it that God can make a promise to us in our lives and then we can get that messed up, we can get ahead of God, we can put words into God's mouth and we begin to think that what God promised needs to be done the way we think God said it would be done when actually God doesn't always reveal. In fact, I have found that he doesn't often reveal how he wants things to become reality. But the fact of the matter is that God always delivers what he promises. He says what he means. He's always on time. He's never late. And somehow he's able to work in the circumstances of my personal life and he's able to work in the circumstances of the world, cause those to converge, cause those to reinforce each other so that his good, pleasing, and perfect will comes out into the end of the process. But the reality is, I know it's true in my life, and therefore it's true in your life, because we're human beings, we're part of the human race, and my life is not different than your life. Your life is really not different than mine, nor is your life or my life different than what we see from the lives of the people in the Bible. That's why this whole series in the book of Acts is about how Christians live, not how they lived, but how Christians live. And this is why we're taking so much time to look at the life of the Apostle Paul, who's the main human character in the book of Acts. Because if we understand how God worked sovereignly in Paul's life, we can understand that Paul's life is really just a microcosm. It's just an example of how God really works in every Christ follower's life. And that brings me full circle with what I said in the beginning. This is a message about you. This is a message about your life and how you need to live it as a follower of Jesus Christ. So where are we going to turn? We're going to look at God's word, Acts chapter 22, the last verse, Acts chapter 22, beginning in verse 30, and then we're going to jump into Acts chapter 23 and see if you can find yourself in the pages of scripture as we go through these verses, that you can get through what's happening in the life of the Apostle Paul and how God's at work in his life. And if you can see how God is at work and how God might want to be at work, even more so in your life. Acts chapter 22, beginning in verse 30. But on the next day, what does that mean, the next day? Well, we left off last time where the Apostle Paul was being stretched out, ready to be flogged by the tribune, the leader of the Roman soldiers. He was going to be flogged. And he pulls out the get out of jail free card. He says, I'm a Roman citizen. Is it legal for you? Is it lawful for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been tried? And the tribune says, oh my goodness, he's absolutely right. We don't have a right to do that. Even though I'm a leader of the Roman soldiers, I still have to abide by the law. So the tribune, a very smart man, led by God, interestingly enough, because God is able to work this whole thing out. Even though he's not a follower of Jesus, he's being led by God. What he does is he says, listen, I'm gonna take this before the Jewish Supreme Court which is the Sanhedrin or the Sanhedrin, comprised of Sadducees who were very sad, you see, and you'll understand why in just a moment, and the Pharisees who weren't very fair, you see. Pharisees, the leaders of the law, 
teachers of the law, they're the ones who decided, the Sanhedrin with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they decided to put Jesus to death. And we're going to see a little bit of injustice again here in the life of Paul. So what this tribune does, he does something very smart. He says, listen, this is a matter that we need to get to the bottom of this. And in order to do that, I'm going to bring you before the Supreme Court of the Jewish people, which is the Sanhedrin. And that's what we see here in verse 30. Next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, the tribune, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So Paul's getting his day in court but it kind of goes south from here, at least from a human perspective. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck See, what really could have happened here, what really should have happened is that they should have been operating justly and fairly. There should have been witnesses brought up, testimony provided, Paul being able to give his testimony about himself, then the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, they would have deliberated, and then they would have brought down a verdict. Is this, what's this man guilty of? What's he, first of all, what's he being charged with? Is he guilty or is he innocent? And then there could have been a punishment rendered. You'll remember, for example, when the Roman soldiers, when Pontius Pilate was involved in this, he sends Jesus to Herod. And then Jesus appears before the Sanhedrin as well, or the Sanhedrin, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And what's happening here, the Roman citizens, the Roman soldiers, the tribune, he understands that he's in charge of keeping law and order. I'm not talking about the television program, okay? He's in charge of keeping law and order among the Jewish people. So he understands that this guy's a Jew, not only a Roman soldier, but he's also a Jew. And this seems to be, the issue here seems to be that the Jewish people are upset with Paul. So what's the right thing to do? Bring him before the Jewish Supreme Court. So he does that. Well, the only problem is that they're not very honest, this Sanhedrin. They're not conducting themselves the way they should have in accordance with Leviticus chapter 19. See, people think Leviticus, it's an outdated book, has no relevance whatsoever. Did you know, for example, as you're going to see, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 19. It's in Leviticus where the very core of Jesus teaching, when they ask him, what's the greatest of all commandments? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul from Deuteronomy chapter six. And then he says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That comes from Leviticus chapter 18, that book that talks about green and red mold and mildew and bodily emissions and all this stuff. Well, why does Leviticus talk about all that stuff? Because Leviticus is a schoolmaster to point the people to the reality that we're all sinners. And there are all kinds of symbols that are presented there of sin and all kinds of symbols of the removal of sin and being cleansed and being made righteous and sanctification. It's called Leviticus because it was the handbook for the Levites who were the only of the 12 tribes that could have served in the temple as priests. So that's where you find the major offerings and sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. That's where you find all of these regulations and rules do's and don'ts about at least a lot of them, not all of them in the Bible, but many of them about what you can eat, what you shouldn't eat, how you should conduct yourself in all kinds of situations. So this is what 
we see in the book of Leviticus. And this is where, if you look at Leviticus chapter 19, beginning in verse 15, this whole principle is found in regard to Paul crying out and calling the Sanhedrin on the carpet and saying, you're not supposed to strike somebody on the mouth and issue a judgment before there's even been a trial. Where does he get that from? Well, remember, Paul is a Pharisee. He was very familiar with the Old Testament. And people in the Sanhedrin or the Sanhedrin, they would have been familiar with the Old Testament as well. So Paul is reminding them that what you did, it's the classic case of hypocrisy. You just violated the law that you're very full aware of, you should be aware of it, and did to me what you should not have done. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15, beginning in verse 15. Look with me. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, speaking wrongly about somebody, right? That's what slander is. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh, the covenant personal name of God. This is the name of God. When you see capital L-O-R-D, it's the personal name of God that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. When Moses says, who should I say sent me? Tell them I am Yahweh. That's the name. I am sent you. And what God is doing here is he's saying, listen, this is such a serious thing that I'm imploring you by my own name. Don't do these things because I'm the Lord. That's the reason that should settle the case. You don't need any other reason in your life to do what God tells you to do other than the fact that God said it. You want to experiment with finding out the hard way that God actually meant what he said, said what he meant, and is always right? You can open up a Pandora's box for yourself. The ultimate beginning and end reason as to why we obey God is because God says so and it honors him, and disobedience always brings disgrace to the Lord, and it always brings discipline. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings discipline. So the personal name of God is being um, given as the reason here as to why they should obey. Verse 17 of Leviticus 19. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall, here it is, love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's what Jesus is quoting from when they asked him, what's the greatest of all the commandments? And he said, the the greatest of all commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And the teaching from Jesus, which is a teaching from the Old Testament that Jesus simply agreed with, imagine that. It's not a new teaching that Jesus is giving. It's that he's correcting what had gone crooked, what had gone south with the leaders of the nation of Israel. Many of them somehow thought that it was possible to love God regardless of how you treated people. And to us, we scratch our heads and we say, boy, how could you miss that? That's just like a basic thing of life. The golden rule, right? Treat others as you want to be treated. Well, guess where the golden rule comes from? It comes from God's book, the Bible. Speaking of which, you've heard this before. You're going to hear it again. And you need to be prepared to stand up and speak out. You need to know how to answer this. When people will say, hey, the United States of America was never a Christian nation. So don't give me any of this Bible stuff. Well, what they don't realize and what you might not have realized, but you're going to realize it now, is that the whole American justice system is based on the Old Testament teaching found right here in Leviticus chapter 19 and elsewhere of innocent until proven guilty. The Sanhedrin was operating by that. That's why Paul rebukes them. 
You're acting out of order. They were supposed to consider somebody to be innocent until proven guilty. This is the whole idea about acting justly. This is the whole idea about having a defense present their case and a prosecution present their case and evidence. And this is the reason why when they tried Jesus, they tried him at night and they did it without even the full members of the Sanhedrin, the full number of the Sanhedrin present. And the reason why they did that is because most likely, had they done that, had they given Jesus an opportunity to present his case as well as the opposing you know, prosecution, and had they had the full Sanhedrin there, Jesus might have been acquitted. And then you and I would have been in big trouble, humanly speaking, because we wouldn't have had somebody die for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross. And it's a good reminder for us as well that even in that very unjust court that was held for Jesus, that resulted in him being condemned and sent to the cross, God was sovereign, that God is bigger than the injustices of people. And aren't you glad that that's the case? Boy, we would be in big trouble if God was not bigger than the injustices that happen to us in our lives, where we're falsely accused, where we falsely accuse others, where we're treated in ways that we don't deserve. All kinds of things would be, uh, what a mess of a world we'd be living in if God wasn't above all of that. But the scriptures... One of the key teachings of the Bible is that God is bigger than human circumstances. He's bigger than human difficulty, that his plan prevails. He means what he says, says what he means, delivers what he promises, and is always on time. So God, just as he was working at, just as he was at work to make sure that his sovereign plan of Jesus going to the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and mine through that illegal trial, he's at work here, even though Paul is being treated unjustly as well. So back to this whole idea of the American legal system, the American court system. The whole idea of innocent until proven guilty comes from Old Testament teaching. And there's a a passage right there from Leviticus 19. So when somebody says to you, you know, America is not a Christian nation. You Christian right-wingers are nut jobs, and I don't want to hear from you. I'm sick and tired of hearing this Christian stuff. You can just calmly and politely, you can just say, You're right. The United States of America was never established as a theocracy. And by the grace of God, I hope it never becomes a theocracy because the only theocracy that ever was, it was the nation of Israel for a limited time to a limited group of people. And the only theocracy to come is going to be with the nation of Israel where Jesus is sitting on the the throne and judging justly. So you're absolutely right. There is no such thing as America ever being a theocracy, nor was it ever a Christian nation. In fact, we paled by comparison of what we could have been when you think about all the atrocities that have happened in the United States in the name of religion and Christianity. So thank you for bringing up that excellent point. You're absolutely right. We're not a theocracy. However, I do take issue with your ignorance over the historical fact that we are indeed a nation based on Judeo-Christian principles. For example, did you know that the whole idea of being innocent until proven guilty and having a court, a day in court where you get a trial of your peers with a jury or with a judge and the verdict is able to come down? Did you know that that comes from Old Testament teaching in the book of Leviticus chapter 19, for example? So I take an extreme issue with your ignorance of the historical fact of how our nation was actually founded and influenced. It actually was founded upon Judeo-Christian principles, and the day that those Judeo-Christian principles are no longer valued and embraced means that we're opening up a Pandora's box of all kinds of gobbledygook and nonsense in the United States. So, there you go. Transcribe what I just said. Print it out. Fold it up. Put it in your pocket. And the next time somebody says, America is not a Christian nation, you can say all of that great stuff. And you can help them understand that oftentimes the people who are the most arrogant when they try to engage in revisionist history, when they engage in 
uh, trying to revise history by saying that the United States did not have Judeo-Christian roots, you can help them understand that, listen, actually what you're doing, here's part two if you need it for the discussion that you have with that person. Actually, the more you talk, the more you're demonstrating your ignorance over history. So I would highly encourage, in order for you to save face and in order for us to enjoy our coffee or our meal or wherever you are, or to go our separate ways peacefully, that you drop the attempt of presenting yourself as the historian that you're really not. God bless you. Have a nice day. So there's part two for you. Was I impolite by saying any of that? Was I rude or brash by saying any of that? Not at all. That's an example of what it looks like to speak the truth in love. As long as you do it with sincerity in your heart and you have your facts in order, that's what needs to happen today because there are a whole army of revisionist historians out there and many of them are being raised up now in the public school system because they're being brainwashed with gobbledygook and nonsense because of good people just like you and me not standing up and speaking out and, and setting the record straight while the record is being made crooked. So, Paul is taking issue with the fact that he was struck on the mouth without even getting to present his case and call witnesses in or anything else. And he speaks up and he says something that's pretty audacious here. And Paul doesn't realize what he's actually getting himself into and he quickly realizes. Look at this. Verse three. Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Remember Jesus, the most humble person who ever walked the face of the earth, called the leaders of the nation of Israel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. He called them whitewashed tombs. And here Paul is doing something very similar, saying you're a whitewashed wall. What is a whitewashed wall? Looks good on the surface, but underneath the surface, it's dirty and it's filthy. That's why it needed to be whitewashed in the first place. In fact, when Jesus talked about the scribes and said that they were whitewashed tombs, the idea would be that inside a tomb, there would be bones and there would be rotting, uh, rotting corpse. And anybody who would touch a body like that, uh, bones or a corpse, decaying flesh, would immediately, according to the Old Testament law, become ceremonially unclean. So by Jesus calling the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, he just makes it very clear. He says, listen, you look good on the outside, but inside are dead men's bones. You're spiritually dead. You're spiritually unclean. You might look good on the outside, but inside you're in need of a complete renewal. You're in need to, to be brought to life. You're dead. You're walking dead men. So Paul does something similar when he says you're a whitewashed wall. Only problem is he doesn't realize and he gets himself into trouble. He doesn't realize who actually gave the command. Look with me. Verse four, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest for it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. If we look at Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, here's where it said uh, right here. This is what Paul is referencing. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. So Paul, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. The high priest acts out of order, and then Paul rebukes the high priest not knowing that it was the high priest, right? He says, I did not know that he was a high priest. Now, how could he not know that 
he was the high priest. What, what is Paul? Was he on a snooze session here? Was he sleeping? You don't want to sleep when it's your day in court. You want to pay attention. Well, remember, this is a highlight reel. We're not getting every single blow-by-blow blow detail that's provided here. And as we look at this passage even further, you're going to see that they just about did come to blows as this situation escalates. So what Luke is presenting to us is the highlights of what took place. And so this could have been a very heated argument that was happening. We're getting a main statement that was given by the Apostle Paul. We don't have all of the other statements that were made. Paul could have been looking in this direction when he heard this voice say, strike that guy on the mouth, and he gets struck on the mouth, and then he turns around and he rebukes what he thought would have been just a member of the Sanhedrin without knowing that it was the high priest. So it could have happened that way. Now, when you take into account the fact that Jesus was crucified anywhere between 27 AD to 33 AD, and that this particular guy, Ananias, was a very cruel high priest who got his just desserts, he got his just rewards when the Roman overthrow of Jerusalem took place just not far after this particular time. This was probably taking place during Ananias' rule about 52 to 60 AD. So it's about 20 to 30 years after the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now, Paul's been out and about doing his missionary work, as we've been looking at, as the book of Acts has been detailing. So he could have been out of touch with the latest situations as to who's the high priest now. You know, he wasn't necessarily connected with all the Jerusalem gossip. So he might not have been familiar with the fact that Ananias was the high priest. But he gets a rude awakening when he realizes this. Now, here's the question that we ask ourselves. Since the book of Acts is a book about how Christians live, not about how Christians used to live, and Paul has been demonstrating for us up to this point what spirit-filled, spirit-led living looks like. What does it look like when a man or a woman is filled with, led by the Holy Spirit? Seems like he's out of step here, doesn't it? Seems like he does something he shouldn't have done. And what does he do? He apologizes for it. He immediately apologizes for it. Some people have suggested that he's being sarcastic here, that Paul is saying, oh, oh, so you're the high priest. I don't give a rip about you. I don't think that that's really a right reading here. I think that Paul genuinely did not know for the reasons that I've already explained and reasons that you can certainly give credence to. I don't think he knew who the high priest was or that it was the high priest that said, strike that guy in the mouth. And what does he do as an example of a spirit-filled, spirit-led individual? He does exactly what you should do, what I should do, when we are spirit-led and spirit-filled. He immediately owns up to it. He apologizes. And it's a wonderful example for you and for me in your personal life, with all the interactions you have with people, in your marriage relationship with your spouse, in your relationship if you're a parent with your children, if you're a child or with parents. It's a great example for each and every one of us Paul, even though he's a great example of being spirit-filled and spirit-led, he's not perfect, he's not flawless. If he was, then he would have been able to go to the cross and die instead of Jesus, but he didn't. Only Jesus was flawless and perfect. You and I are filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God in the flesh. And so what I've learned in my life is what you've learned in your life is that I leak. You leak. Yes, the overall tendency of your life, what you should be shooting for in your life is to be spirit-filled and spirit-led. But there are going to be moments and instances where you might think things you shouldn't think, see things that you shouldn't look at, say things you shouldn't say, treasure things in your heart you shouldn't treasure, and you're no longer walking with the Holy Spirit. And so we need to be filled again and again and again with the Holy Spirit. 
And Paul is a great example, even in his imperfection. Haven't you noticed that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't mean you're perfect and flawless. You leak. We're living outside of Eden in a fallen world filled with imperfect people of which you are one of them. I'm one of them. And so Paul is a great example of how to get back on your horse once you knock yourself off. If you make a mistake, you own up to it. If you've committed sin, you own up to it. The only reason why we don't apologize in our marriages, the only reason why we don't apologize in our families, where there are lifelong schisms between brothers and sisters, mothers and sons and daughters, and fathers and sons and daughters. The only reason why that stuff really happens, why it goes on and on and on, is because somebody is not willing to be humble. It's that old sin of self-protection that crops up. I'm not going to admit it because if I admit it, then I'm going to look bad. So I'll hold that grudge and think that I'm getting ahead when actually a root of bitterness defiles a lot of people beginning with yourself. And so relationships are ruined because of one simple thing that's really not insignificant. Don't confuse simplicity with insignificance. The simple truth is because somebody simply won't be humble. And so Paul, even in his mistake, even in his sin here, violating Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight, speaking ill against the leader of the people, he immediately, because he is a man whose life is characterized, the trajectory of his life is one where he's walking with God, right? I was thinking about this the other day. When it comes to Enoch, you know, the Bible in the Old Testament says that Enoch walked with God. It doesn't say Enoch sat with God. Enoch sat with God. Enoch walked with God. As he was living his life, he was walking with God. And that's what needs to be happening in your life, needs to happen in my life, that you don't just have devotion time, you don't just have Bible reading time and prayer, but once that's done, that's just maybe concentrated time, right? Undistracted time. But then apart from that, you need to be like Enoch, who's a great example, somebody who's walking with God. So in the course of your day, you're listening to God, you're communing with him, you're talking with him, and you're, you're letting him continually adjust your thought process, what you're treasuring in your heart, when you're thinking ill of somebody that you shouldn't be thinking of, or you're tempted to say things or look at things you shouldn't look at or listen to things you shouldn't listen to. Because you're walking with God, you don't have to wait till tomorrow morning when you get before God with your Bible again, or that night, I just gotta get to my Bible and I'm lost because I don't have a Bible and I don't have a room to go to where I can be alone. Well, walk with God. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Paul's a great example. He admits that he's wrong. And that's what needs to be the case in your marriage and your relationships with people. When you're wrong, own up to it. Say, I'm wrong. And an amazing thing happens. I've found this in my life. You'll find it in your life. I know that if Janet were here, she'd say the same thing. We're married and we had to learn this, and we're continuing to learn it, it's counterintuitive. What we think is that if we fess up, if I admit I'm wrong, I'm going to look bad to my wife. I'm going to look bad to my husband. They're going to say, gotcha, told you so. I'm going to look bad to my children. I'm going to look bad to my parents. I'm going to look bad to my coworker. I'm going to look bad to my boss, bad to my subordinates. And it's exactly the opposite when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. When you admit, I was wrong, please forgive me. The exact opposite of what you think would happen happens. People 
what? And oftentimes it takes the steam out of people's engines because they're ready to defend. They're ready to get defensive. They just want to go a couple of rounds with you because they know that it becomes this match of who's wrong and who's right. And as long as two people insist on digging their heels in, listen, the issue is not always who's wrong and who's right. The issue is who will take the first step to be reconciled. Then you can figure out who's wrong and who's right. We're called to reconciliation as followers of Jesus, first and foremost. I'm not saying wrong and right is not important. It is important. Anyone on the side of truth, Jesus said, listens to me. But if you're wrong and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're led by the Holy Spirit, you're alone up to it. And you'll say, you know, I'm wrong. You're right. And if you make that the habit in your relationship with your spouse, if you just begin to, to do the counterintuitive thing and you just say, listen, this is not about self-protection anymore. This is about the glory of God. When you make that transition in your marriage and in your relationships with people, you'll find you'll have tremendous courage to be humble. And when you do that and you begin to say, you're right, I was wrong. And people look at you and say, I got nowhere to go with that. I don't know what to do with that. What? I thought for sure you were going to defend yourself. I thought for sure. Listen, you're free. Because it's no longer about self-protection. It's no longer about self-glorification. It becomes about humility. Agreeing with God about what he already knows. And if you start to make that the habit in your relationships with people, eventually somebody's going to call your hospital and they're going to call the psych ward. They're going to want to know how you went out of your mind. He's not being, she's not being defensive anymore. They're, they're admitting when they're wrong. But you're not out of your mind. You're never more in the right mind than when you're filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. When the mind of Christ is dominating how you're interacting with people, you'll do the right thing at the right time. And even if you do the wrong thing at the wrong time, you make a mess of your life, just call a time out. Wait a second here. Because you're walking with God, right? You're walking with God. Just wait a second. Do I need to own up to something here? Next time you're in a heated, healthy discussion with your spouse. You ever have a heated, healthy discussion with your spouse? There's times when Janet and I have had two, three-parters. We needed to take commercial breaks. I got to go to the bathroom. I'll be right back. And then pick up where we left off, right? Listen, if you're married, two fallen people living outside of Eden, don't lie, you're in church, okay? You're going to have heated discussions at times. In the midst of those, or in, in the workplace environment where there's a disagreement or misunderstanding, just call a personal timeout. And while this whole thing's raging, just say, is there anything that I need to be humble about? Is there any truth to what's being said? Anything that I might have overlooked? Am I in any way trying to protect myself instead of exalt Jesus. See the difference? Am I in any way trying to glorify myself or to make myself look better than I really am? The sin of self-glorification. Can I just call a personal timeout and just agree with God? And right in the middle of, try this sometime, right in the middle of a, of a discussion, just forget about pointing out what the other person was wrong over. Just drop it fixate on what you can own up to and just say, you know what? You're absolutely right about that. Would you forgive me? I'll tell you, people don't know what to do with that. But God does. That's the surest way to turn an argument 
into a reconciliation. That's the surest way to take two people who are butting heads and get them to come together. Somebody's got to break the ice. And I don't know about you, I just know about me, and that's why I know about you. My heart can tend to be very cold if I go down the rabbit trail of it's about me, either how I look or how I feel. And the only reason why you're smiling now is because you know that's true about yourself. I'm just so thankful to God that he's given us a book in the Bible that presents real people with real problems in need of divine help. And that divine help comes courtesy of the Holy Spirit. When we're filled with, led by the Holy Spirit, God hasn't left us as orphans. He's given us the solution to our problems. One of the biggest ways that we get ourselves into problems is when somebody's just not willing to look for the truth and adjust their life to come into alignment with the truth. And Paul does that as a great example of somebody who's filled with the Holy Spirit when he realizes he did something wrong and he says, I didn't know, I'm sorry. Now, we don't necessarily hear those words, read those words, I'm sorry here, but that's what's being implied here through this highlight reel of this account as it took place. All right? So in Acts chapter 23, look at what he does here. Verse six, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, this is the Sanhedrin, he cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Kicks over a hornet's nest here. Master communicator following the master communicator, Jesus, masterfully. He knows how to work the crowd under the leading of the Holy Spirit. Look what happens here. When he had said this, verse seven, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. Verse eight, here's why the Sadducees were sad, you see. For the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Isn't it interesting that God chose a Pharisee Paul to end up being the one New Testament writer who writes more of the New Testament books than any other writer. He's not Paul the Sadducee. He's Paul. That's why they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Would have been a huge leap for a Sadducee to accept Jesus as their savior because their whole paradigm would have had to change. They would have had to believe something that they rejected, which was the idea of a resurrection, a bodily resurrection, and the idea of angels. All this stuff that we read about in the Gospels about angels appearing at the resurrection, right? All the stuff that we read about in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews chapter one, the last verse says that are not angels ministering spirits sent to serve you, those who are inheritors of salvation, a follower of Jesus. And so Paul understands that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, didn't believe in angels, didn't believe in that whole spirit world, but he did as a Pharisee. And so he throws this spiritual grenade into their midst, knowing that it's going to detract attention from him and get them to focus on what the real issue was. Now, I think this is tremendously risky for Paul to do this in terms of his own livelihood. And it's tremendously effective if Paul's objective is to keep the main thing, the main thing, which is the resurrection of Jesus. It's the truth. It's the truth that they, 
Every place this guy goes, he's talking about Jesus and the resurrection. He's even putting himself in harm's way. It's amazing. And you need to do the same thing wherever you go. Every place you go is an opportunity to bear witness for Jesus. And so he throws this grenade in there, spiritually speaking, and says, listen, I'm on trial because of the resurrection. Hornet's nest gets kicked over. And then look at verse nine. Then a great clamor arose and some of the scribes of the Pharisees party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Kind of a trial going on here. When the dissension became violent, look at this, the tribune, the leader of the Roman soldiers, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him, Paul, and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts, the facts, not the innuendo, not the hearsay, the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Hallelujah, Paul hits the jackpot, he's going on a cruise to Rome. How many of you have been to Rome or want to go to Rome? It's a fantasy of yours. It's on your bucket list. Paul's going to Rome. And, you know, we're so much like Paul in that God can make a promise to us. And then the way that promise is fulfilled can be so different than the way we thought it would be fulfilled. I'm not sure exactly went through Paul's mind other than the fact that God promised that he was going to Rome to be a what? A tourist. No, he was going to Rome to be a witness, a witness for Jesus. Everything we're going to read from this point on is going to be a continued fulfillment of what God promised Paul in the first place. Acts chapter 9, verse 16. I'm going to show this man how much he's going to suffer for me. See, what often happens in each of our lives is that God makes a promise. And then as the years go by, we begin to color outside the lines. We begin to put innuendo and flavoring and seasoning on that as if God told us how specifically it was going to happen. And we can spend a lot of time spinning our wheels and get ourselves into a lot of trouble by getting ahead of God and putting words in his mouth that he never said. Listen, God didn't tell Paul that he was going on a cruise to Rome. God just said, you're going to Rome. Now it remains to be seen about how that's going to be fulfilled. How is he going to get to Rome? What are the circumstances? Just like in your life, just like in mine, we don't know how God's going to fulfill what he promises. Our hope is not in how we see God at work in our lives. That's confusing. Many of us need to give that up. Our hope is in that God is at work in our lives, period. Our hope is in God, not in how we think God is going to operate. A lot of rabbit trails people have gotten themselves into, a lot of trouble, a lot of turmoil. People have wasted years of their lives. You know anybody who's done that? Wasted precious time thinking that, well, God told me, well, he might have told you. But what he might not have told you, just like he did not necessarily tell Paul, is how and when he was going to do the things that he said he was going to do. So you got to be really careful. You don't put words in God's mouth. You don't begin to embrace things that you think God told you it was going to be this way when God didn't tell you it was going to be that way. He just told you that he was the way. 
and he was going to lead you. And it's a very subtle thing that can happen to us in our journey of following Jesus. You need to watch for it, be very careful of it. God does not always tell us how things are going to unfold. He just tells us that things will unfold. It's true in Paul's life. It's true in the life of every Christ follower. God speaks, he commissions, he calls, and then it's up to God about how that will be fulfilled. Look at how it begins to unfold here in verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, if they're not going to eat or drink, this is an immediate threat here. You can't go for very long without drinking something. You could go for, oh, even a couple of weeks possibly without eating, but drinking, you've got to drink liquid. You've got to drink, otherwise you're not going to be around for that long unless by the supernatural intervention of God for his sovereign purposes to be able to align circumstances for his ultimate purpose, okay? So, so this, this is an immediate threat here. Verse 13, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we've strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. They're lying, they're deceiving as they do so well and we, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, Here's where Paul's nephew gets involved. The son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So he took him, brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand, going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow. Tomorrow as though they are going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, the cat's out of the bag here, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. So the Romans usually get this bad rap, but they were, at least in some instances, interested in justice. And he wants to make sure that this guy, Paul, even though he doesn't know all the details, is not mistreated because it would have also come back on him if it was under his watch that Paul was mistreated and murdered. There would have been an investigation. The Romans would have investigated and then they would have come back to the tribune. They would have just followed the, the trail and it would have come back to the tribune. Well, how did you let this happen under your watch? So the tribune steps in and says, not under my watch. This is not happening under my watch. No more shenanigans. I'll be darned if I, as a Roman, am outwitted by a Jew. That would have been shameful for a Roman to even contemplate that. Now look what happens here in verse 23. Then he, the tribune, called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. 470 Roman soldiers. I bet Paul didn't even possibly imagine this would be the opening entourage on his trip to Rome. Forget about a cruise. He's going in first-class arrangements where nobody is going to get to Paul. I mean, it would have been absolutely impossible to get through 470 Marines who were well-armed and equipped to the hilt. Nobody's going to touch Paul, 
all right? 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night, nine o'clock at night. So this guy is sharp, this tribune. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. You want to talk about the sin of self-glorification? Here it is right here. Look at this. Claudius Lysias. To his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused, me, myself, and I, me, 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 me. This guy's up for a promotion now. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. There's truth to what he's saying. It just seems to be a little bit me, myself, and I heavy. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. Again, fairness in the trial. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And so, What we're seeing here is not just Paul's story, we're seeing your story as well, where God makes a promise and he's in the process of orchestrating events to deliver on that promise. Remember, God says what he means, means what he says, delivers what he promises. He's always on time and never late. But how could Paul have possibly imagined that so much difficulty and so much hardship would have arisen? See, what's happening here as a result of all of this, you know what happens? If Paul had desired of his own initiative to go into Rome on one of his missionary journeys, he probably would have never had the hearing with all of the big head honchos that he ends up hearing because of this situation. The backdrop is laid. The bricks and the foundation and the mortar have been poured. That set the stage for Paul Out of necessity, according to the way the Romans operated, he's now going to be able to press the flesh in the power of the Spirit before the leaders of Rome. He would have never had that opportunity if the persecution and the hardship and the mistrial that he just engaged in with the Sanhedrin didn't take place. So a large part of your life, a large part of my life, let's, let's, let's just be honest about this, is often spent spinning our wheels trying to get out of things that cause pain and difficulty and hardship putting words in God's mouth, getting ahead of God, thinking that the way he's going to do things will be this way when God didn't necessarily promise that it's going to be the way that we envision them to be. We just know that what God says, God will fulfill. What he promises, he will deliver. We need to be careful that we don't get ahead of God and begin to anticipate things and begin to even manipulate things to try to make things happen in keeping with what God has promised. Many of us, you know, we're along for the ride, but we still have our hands on the steering wheel. Take your hands off the wheel and let God drive. Let him steer. Trust him. He will deliver what he's promised. 
it's probably not going to happen the way you think it's going to happen. Listen, I've spent a lot of time in my life. I've had impassioned arguments with God, reminding him of what he told me he was going to do. For some reason, God doesn't argue back. He just keeps his cool, maintains his calm composure, and just continues to execute his sovereign plan. And as I let him drive, I found that as I've let him drive through the years, he's always delivered what he's promised. He's always come through right on time. And he actually doesn't need as much help from me as I thought he needed. And I bet that's true in your life too. It's true in the Apostle Paul's life. He's just going along for the ride. God's making promises to encourage him. Listen, I know what I'm going to do. It's about me, not about you. It's not about your comfort. It's not about your glory. It's not about things happening the way you think they're going to happen. It's about me. I'll do what I need to do for my glory And the more you buy into the glory of God, the less you get concerned with how God causes the details in your life to unfold. And that's really what maturing in Christ is about. You concern yourself less with how God does things, but, oh God, I just want you to do it. I don't care how it happens. I don't care how you use me or what you do with my life. I only care that you're at the epicenter and that you're the one that I'm following. Lead me. I relinquish control. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. You can also invite Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.